Hey, hey, welcome once again. It's the Disability Law Show. Love having you here. Tamara Gopian, of course, is always in attendance, and she's the one you want to listen to. She's got the knowledge, right? You want to reach out to Tamara as well. She's got a great team. And a toll-free phone number, which is nice, one 855 821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. And for short, quick, concise, easy-to-read memos about LTD, no lawyers speak, it's just plain speak, ltdfaq.ca. Emails already coming in tomorrow. They always do. People uh, in line Thank to get you. them read and get some answers. But we always start off with the case of the day or a week that was that you've been working on, some interesting stuff. What do you got to, What do you got today, Bo? Absolutely. You know, John, I want to talk about a recent success story, actually. And and I say recent and I say it's on the cusp of being a success story, but I think it's important for our listeners to hear sort of the process that I have a client that I'm working with right now. And we're going to settle his case and we're going to settle it in a matter of months. And I wanted to start off the show talking about what he has experienced. So he had been working for an employer for a number of years. Of course, the employer had disability insurance. Uh, He had been struggling with a bunch of symptoms that the doctors didn't really know what was going on, some vision issues, headaches, lethargy, fatigue, you know, just a a variety of things, some mental health components. And he started to struggle at work and to the point where there was some performance issues at work. The, he has a discussion with his employer. The employer suggests, look, you really should consider a disability claim. So he gets on the short term, no problem, and then gets a whole whack of resistance when he's trying to transition to long-term disability. Long story short, he's never approved for long-term disability. The insurance company resists him multiple times as he continues to appeal, continues to supply medical support from his doctors that, look, these symptoms are simply preventing him from working. But the insurance company had tunnel vision. All they saw was that there were some performance issues at work, and they labeled this as this is a workplace issue. You should be able to do your job elsewhere in another work setting, and therefore we are not going to approve your disability claim. So he struggles through, uh, is denied, of course, multiple times, and then is subjected to a number of brain surgeries, John. Yes, brain surgeries, not one, but two because it turns out he had a serious neurological issue that wasn't repaired the first time. They had to go back in a second time. At this point, he's got no funds. He's going through all of this. And he comes to us and I say, look, we've got to assert a legal claim here. And we've got to really put the insurance company's feet to the fire in a very quick way because you've been out of funds for so long. And frankly, you're struggling with your health issues still and financial issues. So I recommend uh, that he also pursue CPP disability. No brainer, John. He gets approved right away. Of right. course, you know, this is the test if you have a severe and prolonged disability. And so I package this up. I assert the legal claim. And I'm telling you, within months, of course, the insurance company is like, yeah, okay, we were wrong here. You know, this is not really a workplace issue. They, he was actually terminated through all this. The employer actually cut him loose in, in all of this as well. So that's sort of a sidebar to uh, to all of this. And that may be a basis for a further claim. But right now, I can tell you the response we are getting from the insurance company is almost immediate. And I don't know how much our listeners appreciate that how our involvement can have that kind of impact. It can be that quick when their lawyers realize what we realize, which is this should have been approved right from the start. And that the courts are really focused on symptoms. The diagnosis doesn't really matter. If the symptoms are there and your doctor's saying you can't work. And by the way, that you ultimately have this 
variety of surgeries, pretty serious stuff that are going to happen. This should be approved. And the insurance company knows it. And so I wanted to start off the show talking about this, but you know, it's a recent successes and something that I'm working on that I think is going to close out very, very quickly. And my client can't be more thrilled about it. I love success stories like that, by the way, and I'll give it to you again. I just did uh, a few minutes ago, but reaching out to uh, Tamar, super simple. Anytime you want to discuss your matter, one eight five five eight two one. 5,900 is the way that works. Elaine is our first email for the uh, the show today. Tamara, let's get into this. Says, uh, hey, Tamara, I was having really bad headaches and blurry vision about six months ago. After being admitted to hospital for several days and undergoing a bunch of tests, I was told I have a hematoma in my brain. I've been off work ever since. The neurologists and ophthalmologists I've seen don't really have any treatment recommendations for me. I still have headaches and some dizziness when I look at a screen too long, and I have a job where I need to be at a computer all day. I got short-term disability benefits, but I was denied by the insurance company for long-term. They're saying because I can drive and do my day-to-day activities, I can work. My doctor says I should stay off work until I at least see the neurosurgeon in a few months for another opinion about brain surgery. Should I be fighting the insurance company for benefits? My goodness, Elaine read my mind this morning, John. I I was thinking, you know, how similar does that sound to, you know, my opening salvo? So, So look, Elaine, I think that what I'm zoning in on is this idea that you know, because she can achieve and drive and do her day-to-day activities that the insurance company is saying, you can go and work. This is really challenging, John, in situations like this, because typically I'll say, yep, you know what, your doctor's saying, stay off work, you should be fine, all good. You know, let's fight the insurance company. They made the wrong decision here. But I think what I'm concerned about is that function. How functionally compromised is Elaine And how does that line up with a potential capacity to work? And, you know, it can be difficult to coordinate with the doctor and your employer and the disability insurer that perhaps the work capacity is only partial and not a total disability. And I'm getting into the weeds here a little bit because I'm trying to wrap my head around what it is that it's a potential barrier for Elaine getting her disability benefits approved. Certainly, you know, there's objective medical, you know, that thing we talk about, it's not really something that uh, is the guiding point for courts. And and it is for insurance companies, unfortunately. But what I mean by that is that there's testing available. There are things that she has undergone already, and there are upcoming appointments. But what the insurance company is going to be looking at is the point in time. So could it be that she's a candidate for surgery down the road? Yes. Would that render her unable to work? Yes. But what is happening right now? Because if she is demonstrating a capacity to drive and do other day-to-day activities, and perhaps she's got the ability to work on a computer for even just a little while, then the insurance company is going to look at that with their definition of disability and consider whether or not that's in fact total, such that she should be compensated for disability benefits. So in a situation like Elaine's, I think the devil is in the details, John. I want to see what the medical information says. Has the doctor really explained you know, look, after half an hour, an hour, four hours, whatever the time frame is, what is her limit or tolerance for the computer work? And what are there other limits in terms of day to day? Or is she able to function as well as anyone in all the other, uh, you know, planes of her life? And if that's the case, and the insurance company doesn't have much to go on, then I'm not surprised that they're going to decline in a situation like this. 
And that really is going to govern whether or not it makes sense to challenge the disability insurer. My inclination is yes. Insurance companies don't really like to wait for individuals to get, you know, further treatment and this sort of thing. But there has to be that medical support that those symptoms really line up to a total disability, which is what she needs to meet as a test to qualify for benefits. Again, Elaine, appreciate the email. You want to uh, reach out any further, it's uh, it's simple. And you probably will end up having a talk as well, one 821 5900 with Tamar and her team. It always just adds to the stress with these things. And I know we, we've mentioned uh, in the past, Tamar, and the TV show as well, once they get you involved, once they get the firm involved, the uh, the poking around, the phone calls, the emails, the texts from uh, anybody at the insurance company have to stop. I don't say they do stop. They, they have to stop, right? They do. They do, John. So just to pull back the curtain here, let me explain to mm-hmm. individuals who might be listening what happens. You retain us. The very next thing that I do is I send a letter to the insurance company and I say, do not contact my client. Love it. All of those communications end. If you need any further information, you contact my office and I will facilitate that. That includes, by the way, coordinating, getting medical reports, contacting your doctors if we need anything particular. We will do all of that in order to allow individuals to just focus on their health and not have to deal with the insurance company anymore. That's part of our service. That's what they've hired us to do. And that notice letter can be really quite significant from the insurance company's perspective, because now they're like, oh, there's a lawyer. Oh, we know this firm. We know this lawyer. We know where this is headed. And in that letter, I'll say to them, by the way, I also want to see your full file. Send me everything you've got. I want to see every little stitch of documentation that they've used to justify why they've cut off my client in terms of their claim. And I think that that process can be really, really effective. And if they aren't respectful to that process, then that buries the insurance company even further. Like, like I can tell you, John, just for firsthand, recently I was uh, retained by a client and the insurance company kept ignoring my emails and my letters saying, don't contact my client anymore. And so he kept emailing me and saying, tomorrow, why are they still contacting me? I said, I know it's very odd. I don't know why they continue to contact you, but I can tell you that they're just making the situation worse for them because they are disobeying a very specific rule in this province, in all our provinces, frankly, that once you have representation, once you have a lawyer, you cannot, you, everything has to go through that lawyer. It, it's the same with the insurance company. Once they've hired a lawyer, I can, I have to con- continue to co- communicate with their lawyers. This is why this process though is so effective because there are rules to this game. And so there are rules in terms of when responses have to happen, what kinds of communications need to happen between the two parties in a, in a lawsuit. And those rules just simply don't exist when it's just you as a disabled claimant trying to fight the big bad insurance company to get your disability benefits paid. So there are some huge advantages to going down the road of hiring a competent counsel, a competent lawyer to advocate for you and advance your claim for you. And of course, as you said, John, the biggest one is that those calls stop, that the probing stops, you know, all of that ends. Uh, because a lot of the times, even just that process alone can exacerbate someone's health conditions and then puts them in a situation where they're even worse off, even though they're all they're trying to do is just, you know, focus on their health and try and get better to get back to work. 
With that, we take a short break. More questions, emails coming up. You want to contribute to the show, we'd love to have you on any time. Do it with an email. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Another place for you to ask questions free and anonymously is uh, mydisabilityquestions.com. Check that out. And uh, the phone number. You can always have a chat with Tamara or a member of her team. She'll hook you up. No problem. 1-855-821-5900. That number, of course, toll free. We'll continue after a short break. Lots more of the disability law shows coming right up. Yeah, welcome back, Disability Law Show. Good to have you along with us today. Tamara Gopian is here, partner, Samfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this country. How about that? Reaching out is simple. That's why they get a positive review. It's really easy to talk to somebody. Have a chat, toll-free, 1-855-821-5900, and email we use every show. You can use anytime as well, help at disabilityrights.ca. You know, it's it's we talk about mainly tomorrow that people with their long term disability insure. Quite often, it's through the employer. It's part of their benefit right. package. So, should someone who's denied benefits ask the employer to get help with their benefits approved by the insurance company, or you just leapfrog them and go right after the insurance company? What's easiest or better? So, so look, my my knee jerk reaction is always to say, look, the insurance company is the target because they are the ones who are actually paying the benefit. But that's not always the case, John. So let's backtrack for a moment. You're absolutely right that disability benefits, typically most of what we talk about on the show is a group disability plan. It's one that's available to all employees of a certain employer. So the question is often, well, they come to us, you know, my benefits were denied. Oh, my employer really had something to do with it. I'm sure of it, this sort of thing. That's often not the case usually for long-term disability benefits. And so here's some caveats. There is a relationship between the insurance company and the employer in respect of benefits, whether short-term or long-term, always, because ultimately it's your employer who's paying the premium or at least remitting the premium to the insurance company for the disability benefit. So inevitably what's going to happen is the insurance company or the employer and vice versa will will alert one another of this potential disability claim and the insurance company, if you're approved, will update your employer about what's happening with your disability claim. Now, they won't share with your employer your medical information. They won't get into that detail with the employer, but they certainly will share with your employer, look, you know, we've approved the benefits for another three months, four months, or, you know, we are going to start planning for a return to work. We'd like your cooperation with that. The insurance company will be involved in those ways. But when we're talking about strictly the approval or denial process, what will normally happen is that the adjuster from the insurance company will contact your employer, usually in an email, and they will ask a series of of questions, John. And inevitably, one of those questions is, has this person been a good employee? Basically, okay. You know, are there any performance issues? Have they been absent? You know, have they been disciplined? You know, this kind of thing. Like I was talking about at the top of the show, sometimes that backdrop of what's been happening from a work perspective can unfairly influence what an insurance company does with your disability claim. So the opposite of that can also be true in some respects. If the employer is a big group and they know there's, you know, there's a, the account to the insurance company is important, right? So the dollars are important. Then your employer could have some influence as to what it is that they communicate to the insurance company and some influence on whether or not your claim is going to be approved. Now I say this 
not because I can approve any of this, John, is it's because there's a tone in the claims files that I read that there can be this communication and this influence. You know, are you ever going to see your employer going to bat for you for a disability claim? No, not necessarily. Okay, so I want to disabuse anyone's notion that, oh, yeah, my employer is going to go to bat for me. I'm going to get disability benefits. No, it doesn't happen that way. Really, the only responsibility your employer has in terms of your disability claim is to submit a form to ensure that that form gets to the insurance company and that they've provided whatever information the insurance company needs to initiate and review your initial application and, you know, to answer any questions they may have along the way. That's really the extent of it out of the gates. So, you know, what I like to see is those details in the claims file if it's a situation like I described at the top of the show where the insurance company is saying, you know what, this is just a workplace issue. This is not a true disability claim. We think you can work elsewhere. There's obviously a breakdown in your relationship with your employer. And, you know, this is why we're denying. Well, that may be. But think of situations where individuals are on stress leave, John, and that stress leave is pinned to what was happening in the workplace. That is still potentially a valid disability claim if those health issues are persisting if they're well-documented and those symptoms require treatment. And so it's too easy for, I think, an insurance company in a situation like that to say, oh, well, it's all a workplace issue and this is not a quote-unquote true disability claim. No, that's not the test. The test doesn't talk about workplace at all whatsoever. It just simply says, how does the individual's health disable them from doing the essential parts of their job or their occupation? And if the answer to that is yes, then those benefits should be approved. A little bit of a long answer to a, to a good question, which is, should the you know should I lean on my employer to help me with this? If they're not doing the basics, sure, they should absolutely supply the forms, answer any questions the insurance company might have. But whether or not that's going to influence either the insurance company saying yes or no, I think the chances of that are pretty low, unfortunately. Let's get to uh, to George. An email comes in again. Uh, help at disabilityrights.ca says I am a self-employed contractor working in construction. I've been paying into a private disability insurance policy for years. I listen to the show every week. We love George, and I've been wondering if it's worth paying the premium for my policy if I'm just going to end up getting the runaround by the insurance company if I make a disability claim. I think I have a lifetime benefit of two thousand dollars a month if I get sick and can't work. I'm curious what advice you have for people who have these kind of policies. Thanks. Exact opposite to what we were talking about, right? That yeah, cool. that's right, John. Yeah. Thanks, George, for this question because it is exactly the the opposite of what we were just talking about. It certainly sounds like George has an individual disability policy, John. So one where he would have likely put in, you know, an application for insurance, submitted some information about his health, and then taken out a policy possibly directly with a broker. And it sounds like it's a pretty good one. So two thousand dollars a month for the rest of his life. And he's a self-employed contractor. So these kinds of policies are actually very, very important for individuals who are self-employed. It's truly what it's meant to be, an insurance policy that's supposed to be a peace of mind policy where if you are not able to work, you can access this type of disability benefit in order to have that financial support that you likely need um, in situations like that. And so, no, I wouldn't say don't stop paying the premium, George. I mean, look, there's value to these policies. The thing is, is that I see the subset of this, right? I see the claims that get denied on these kinds of policies and claims. I'm sure there's lots that do get approved. It's just those are not the ones that I necessarily see. 
I mean, of course, I see some claims that get reinstated or approved, you know, this kind of thing. But, uh, you know, the vast majority of the, of the issues that we deal with are, are claimants who are either denied out of the gates or cut off at some point during their disability claim. I think what would be important for George to understand, though, is what what is the definition for disability? It would be important to understand perhaps the broker can answer those questions for him or maybe someone like me, you know, send us the policy and we can, you know, navigate as to what situations that policy would respond. Because if in his mind it's going to respond to a certain situation and it doesn't, then no, you don't want a policy that's not going to meet your needs. Uh, But again, insurance brokers are the experts in these kinds of situations, John, not me. But I think it's an important question to, for people to, to understand that, look, what am I paying this premium for? You're right. There, there's lots of claims that get denied where you, premiums have been paid and the insurance company should pay out. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here to help people do. Uh, but don't uh, sort of shoot yourself in the foot, I guess, so to speak, early on and sort of be defeatist and say, oh, well, maybe there's no point in this policy at all. No, that's not necessarily what I re- would recommend particularly if you're in a situation like George, where you don't have necessarily a fallback on a group disability plan or another employer or that kind of thing. When you're self-employed, you might want to have that level of protection. George, appreciate that. A further phone call is no problem. 1-855-821-5900. So let me ask you this then. When someone is getting disability benefits, um, how often do they expect to hear from the insurance company? I guess it depends how far along they are in the claim, but uh, what do you think generally? Yeah. So, you know, John, I've spent some years uh, before before joining this firm uh, working for an insurer. And so, you know, it was there a magic number. Is it five times? Is it three times? Is it two times? I can tell our listeners, no, there's no guidance around this. None whatsoever. There, there's actually not even any training for the insurance adjusters about how many times they're supposed to call someone or speak to someone or email someone about their claim. And it puzzles me that there's no guidance around this. It's even more troubling when there isn't even a single phone call and they issue that denial letter, John. I've seen that happen too. They don't even talk to you. They just look at the forms you submitted and say, you know what? Eh, This isn't enough. I'm just going to deny your claim. That's it. Go and try and appeal. Can you imagine that? So, you know, I I would hope there's at least one phone call before they make the decision. Um, But you're absolutely right, John, that, you know, if you're on claim, Generally speaking, once your claim has been approved, you can expect some sort of a touch point once a month, I would say is typical. Uh, And then if you're, you know, being put through more aggressive or rigorous uh, evaluation of your disability claim, in other words, if the insurance company is going to open that tool chest and think about, okay, what can we do here to get this person back to work? That may include assessments. That may include, you know, suggesting that you get treatment from one of their own facilities. Uh, You know, perhaps that will include uh, an independent medical assessment. There's a whole host of different things that the insurance company can do during the course of the life of your claim. And of course, with all of those uh, steps being taken, you can have increased contact. So let's use the rehab example. So the rehabilitation example is this for those who are not familiar. At some point, the insurance company may say, look, we think you're you're stable enough from your health perspective that we want to have you assessed, and then we want to put a treatment plan in place that's basically going to get you back to work. Some insurers call this a work-hardening program. So you've been off for over a year. Now we're going to put you through with some physical therapies, perhaps some mental health supports, and the combination of that within eight to 10 weeks, you should be ready to start a return to work plan. 
most insurers, what they will do is if that's what they've decided to do and their policies allow them to do this, John, they will actually assign another person like an adjudicator, but someone that has actual rehab background to be the go-between the claimant and the adjuster. So now you've been dealing with this one person. Now you're dealing with this other person. And this other person is telling you go to this other rehab facility. You're going to be dealing with a bunch of people there too. I think what individuals need to understand with these this kind of contact is that all these people are insurance people. Okay. I know they wear different hats and like, no, no, we're yep. we're the rehab facility. We're here for this. We're here for that. At the end of the day, they get paid by the insurance company. The goal is to get you back to work. So whatever they will be reporting has an inherent bias to it, John, regardless of what they may be saying to the claimant about their progress. Oh, you know, I'm going to recommend that you're not ready to go back to work, this kind of thing. I have actually seen that happen where they say to my client, we don't think you're ready. And then they put in a report to the adjuster. Yeah, okay, they're ready to go. How does that even happen? So then it becomes your word against their word about what's being reported to the insurance company. So look, the main thing takeaway here is that you do want to be cooperative with the insurance company's efforts, all of the contact and emails and so on. You want to be transparent with what you're doing, where you're at with your treatment, right. really talk to them about symptoms and details. All those things are super important. But if you're a little concerned, there's no harm in you documenting on your end about what's happening. Okay, here's a little journal I'm going to keep or a running Word document with every time I got a phone call. And, you know, two, three sentences about what that was, what was discussed or send yourself an email after that discussion. If, if you're worried about the he said, she said, not sure what's being documented, what's being reported, you can keep your own record and you can engage your own medical team about the progress. All of those things will protect you from the ultimate reality that an insurance company might be pushing you to get back to work or, you know, using your words against you or misinterpreting a conversation. Right. When you've got things documented, that's that's great power for you down the road if there's an issue. Guys, reaching out to Tamar anytime. This information is valuable. It's also uh, free to you to have a chat. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. In that regard, Charlie's got a good email coming up. It's something we talk about all the time. It doesn't seem this stuff is ever going to end, but we'll keep tackling them until someone gets a... A wrap over the head and smartens up for sure. We'll get into that and tell you what I'm talking about after a short break. In the meantime, if you want to stand by and reach out to tomorrow, both those contacts are good. Or mydisabilityquestions.com is also there, free and anonymous, for you to use anytime. Short break, back with more of the Disability Law Show. All right, welcome back. Thanks for hanging in. Disability Law Show, Tamara Gopian Partner, Sam Firu, Tamarkin LLP. Reach out to Tamar anytime, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Charlie, thanks for writing in. Let's get to your email. Charlie Tamar says, my mom's 55, had a fall six months ago that uh, this is still being investigated. Her family doctor thinks she may have vertigo or something to do with her nerves. Her doctor put her off work while she waits to see a neurologist for further testing. Her disability claim was denied, though. The insurance company said there was insufficient information of a disabling condition. What does this mean? If her doctor says she can't work, is that not enough? It should be enough. Yeah. Uh, I'm seeing a theme today, John. <laughs> Big time. All these neurological conditions and that. So so here's the theme, guys. It's this idea of the symptoms. I keep going back to this. And if there's documented symptoms that are preventing someone from working, that is all the, the test is to be required to meet 
the test for disability. That's that's all there is. It should be that simple. So yes, the doctor being supportive that your mom shouldn't be working, Charlie, that, that should be the, enough. So why is it that the insurance company has declined the claim? Other than for obvious reasons that it's profit-driven, you know, they've got to deny a bunch of claims and make sure they get the premiums and hope that your mom's better and she's just feeling forced to get back to work. The difficulty becomes you know, the disconnect between that and the doctor saying, you need to stay off work. You can't be working right now. And let's see what's happening with your health issues. You know, especially if she's sustaining falls, especially if, what if John, she's in a work setting that's safety sensitive. Think about any kind of, uh, you know, physical work requirement, factory work, driving work, I don't know, PSW, nursing. I, there's so many settings that come up to, in my mind where if someone has vertigo, which is dizzy spells, and they can fall, they can not only injure themselves, but they could put other people at harm's in harm's way as well. And so is that in and of itself a reason to pull someone from work? Absolutely. Until you figure out what's going on. And that symptom can often be resisted by insurance companies as sufficiently disabling because they're going to say, well, when you're not having a dizzy spell, you're fine. You're good. You can work. And this is why the details are so, so important. I'm actually really interested as to what Charlie's mom's doctor put in the application material to the insurance company to apply for disability benefits. I'm also interested as to what the clinical notes and records of the doctor say about symptoms that she's experiencing. Clearly, there's enough there, though, John, that she's waiting to see the neurologist, right, for further testing. I think the fact that there is that additional step being taken by the doctor, in my mind, suggests there's enough there to substantiate not only a disability claim, but perhaps something that's pretty serious that's going down the path of something significant that, you know, maybe the insurance company just wants to bury their head in the sand and not really approve claims like this, not knowing. The other thing that kind of put a light in my brain, John, is that Charlie tells us that his mom is 55. Okay. Right. That's an interesting age for insurance companies. And they they don't want to admit that age is a factor of anything that they do or any decisions that they make. But it it absolutely does, John, because someone with a profile, again, I'm assuming she's got a physical job, John, I don't know for a fact, but regardless, someone with that profile, we know that disability insurance pays until age 65. Yes, there are two tests to qualify. The first two years typically is are you totally disabled from doing your own occupation? Yep. And then after those two years, after those 24 months of benefits have been paid, it then switches over to what we call the any occupation phase of the policy, which says, you know, are you disabled due to your health? Are you unable to do any occupation, any job for which you have the minimum qualifications, the education and experience to do that would pay you roughly what your disability benefit is paying, which as we know, is usually two thirds of what you were making. And so when you're calibrating, if you're the adjuster or the insurance company, you're sitting there saying, okay, I've got a 55 year old. If I approve this claim, I'm gonna pay them until she or he is 57 years old. And then I'm gonna have to make a decision at 57, whether he or she has enough education, training and experience to go out and make you know enough money to earn two or three or $4,000 right. a month, such that I can then justify cutting off her disability claim. 
And then we're fighting over the age of 57 to age 65 for the final payout of the disability claim. So I I'm, I'm, would not be surprised. I don't want to say I want to guarantee it, but I would not be surprised, John, that that is influencing the decision here to resist Charlie's mom's claim, see if whether or not there's some capacity for her to work, relegate her back to the employer, you know, make her suffer through a partial work capacity if that's really what there is, or just wait her out and see what other information comes out from a medical perspective, and then to do the age-old tactic. Well, if you don't like our decision, you can appeal our decision. Oh. So yeah, right. This is the automatic response for any adjuster. So we're not even going to approve it. We're just going to wait you out, and if you do get better medical information to support your claim, well, we we'll we'll look at it. But but you've got to give it to us in thirty days. Uh, after that, we're we're closing your file. <laughs> It's arbitrary, John. The 30 yeah. days means nothing. I mean, if you supply more medical information to the insurance company, they are obligated to review it. They have to respond to you. The problem is, of course, is that they don't have to respond to you in a timely way. So I think this is what's concerning me with uh, Charlie's mom's situation is that, you know, where is this headed? And if it's headed in a way where there's lots of health issues, then, you know, I would have hoped that the insurance company would have done what they should have done, which is to approve the claim and monitor the health issues, much like what her own doctor is doing. Yeah, but once they hear that, you know, we're closing your file, I mean, in comes the panic and, the, and uh, you know, the anxiety, which is going to exacerbate any sort of conditions that anybody you deal with is going to feel, right? <laughs> Absolutely. This is why the appeal process is so frustrating to That's me, right. John, because not only is it nowhere in the policy, it's just something conceived of by insurance companies to sort of keep you in their, you know, uh, game, I guess, or the, mm. yeah, their machine. That's right. Uh, but it, but it's also that there's no accountability to it. So it's not like a, an in, another individual is going to weigh in at the insurance company about the situation. Uh, it's not like it's going to be a whole team of people evaluating the medical information, or frankly, even accessing an actual you know doctor to evaluate it it's not like the insurance company is going to say oh yeah you know what we've got a neurologist we can actually send you to to have the assessment that you're waiting for they're, they're not going to do any of those things john and so i think that's what makes it increasingly difficult is now you've got a person who's trying to figure out what's happening with their health very unsettled from a financial perspective and really looking for that disability benefit to allow them some ease to not only you know, give themselves time to recover, but in, in Charlie's mom's situation, figure out what the heck is going on so that she can get the right treatment and hopefully get to a point where she can recover and get back to work. One more break, and we'll get into more stuff here, maybe some more emails to help at disabilityrights.ca. Not just for the show, that email you can send along to tomorrow and your team anytime. Don't uh, don't worry about that again. Help at disabilityrights.ca. If it's a phone call you prefer, no problem, 1-855-821-5900. We continue with the Disability Law Show. All right, a few minutes to go, Disability Law Show. Thanks for hanging in. You can reach out anytime, not just during this hour, to Tamar and her amazing team at the firm, always ready for uh, some correspondence, some quick answers, at least a chat, right? one 855 821 the number for you to use anytime. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And for short, concise, easily written and understood memos about all things LTD, if you have questions, even before the phone call, you can try ltdfaq.ca as well. We talk about CPP disability all the time on the show tomorrow and how it's uh, it's a good one-two punch with your current disability uh, benefits as well. O- more onerous tests for sure, but once you're approved, you're approved. Are there other benefits a uh, disability claimant can access or should at least apply for or is going to be told to apply for maybe by an insurance company? 
Good, good question, John. So the one that really comes to mind oftentimes is the disability tax credit. Very oh, yeah. similar. Yeah. So very similar tests to the CPP disability test, right? And it is a federally government, federal government, you know, generated program. And it basically reduces the taxability of any amounts you receive by way of income. And so for some individuals, their ta- their disability benefit is actually taxable. So if you are approved for the disability tax credit, you can get some of that taxability back. So I'm told. Now, folks, I am not a tax lawyer. Uh, I'm ashamed to admit I don't even do my own taxes. But here, no kidding. here's what I do know. <laughs> here's what I do know, John, is that you, if you apply for these kinds of uh, benefits, they can have a, a ripple effect. So it's helpful that the government is approving you for the tax credit, the disability tax credit, because the test is, do you have a severe and prolonged disability? And a lawyer like me can leverage that against the insurance company to say, hey, um, they've met a more onerous test than the test that's in your policy. So certainly if the government is accepting that there's total disability here, that there should be an acceptance under your policy that those benefits should continue under the insurance policies plan. Um, And what I like about the disability tax credit as well is that it's not a deduction. There's no credit applied. Uh, In other words, the insurance company doesn't get a benefit for it. It's just the benefit is just to the claimant, to my client or the claimant, which is also a really, really good thing. The other ones that I can think of would be, uh, you know, Ontario Disability Support Payments, for example. ODSB. Yeah, yeah, ODSB, which is like a welfare plan for individuals who have disabilities. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that one can be a little trickier because my, my understanding, at least from other clients, is that if you have access to funds and, you know, if you have assets and this sort of thing that you may not even get into the gates of or get out of the gates with ODSP. So that one could be uh, a little trickier to navigate. Of course, CPP disability, disability tax credit. And then, you know, what insurance companies like to do as well is to sort of explore if there is, you know, for example, a worker's compensation claim. Mm -hmm. So if you were injured at work, for example, and your employer has remitted to WSIB, which is the tribunal uh, that governs workers' compensation benefits, then the insurance company will canvas, look, have you made a workers' compensation claim? You know, have you gone down that path? You should pursue it, make the report, do the application. And that actually involves your employer as well. And the reason they do it, John, is because if you are approved for workers' compensation benefits, the income approval level is actually higher than what you would get approved for. Yeah. For long-term disability. And because the long-term disability policies ask for a credit or have a credit for anything you get from workers' compensation, it is a huge boon for the insurance company to say, whether we approve you or not, you should be getting workers' compensation. And if you do, it, it would nullify anything that we'd have to pay you. So I've seen this happen a couple of times. And I just, I don't like this because workers' compensation is its own entity. It's self-governing. You can't, you know, sue workers' compensation for the benefits. It's a tribunal. And they have their own rules and regulations around whether or not they approve the benefits. And in some respects, they don't even provide the income part of it. They might just give you rehab support. It's a whole quagmire of things. And I don't like the idea that the insurance company gets let off the hook just because their policy says they get a credit for workers' compensation. So I've actually very recently gave this advice to someone who said, look, the insurance company is saying they get a full credit, and so they're not paying me anymore. 
uh, yeah, that may be, but what is their determination? Are you still considered totally disabled under the policy? Because if you stop getting workers' compensation, then the insurance company's benefits just start to kick back up again, right? So it's a very clever way for the insurance company to sidestep workers' compensation benefits and people who have a workplace-borne injury. And I, I just don't like to give the insurance companies any excuse to, to get off the hook, right, John? So if this is sounding familiar, you should definitely go down the path. I'm certainly not suggesting that you don't. You should explore workers' compensation. That's what it's there for. But just be mindful of the fact that it doesn't necessarily, you know, get your disability insurer off the hook. It's uh, now when you say they get a credit for, say, now run the topic kind of a workman's comp for now, and you're saying yeah. they're going to get a credit for it. Uh, they say we don't have to pay you anymore. It's the difference, isn't it? So uh, if if your long term disability is paying you two thousand bucks a month, but workers' comp is only paying you five hundred, they just get the credit for the five hundred, right? That's absolutely right. Okay. Yes, let me yeah, okay. be, be clear on that. It's just that what I was going at here was that workers' compensation. I think the income level support is something like seventy percent or seventy five percent if you're oh, approved okay. of what you were making before. Whereas with long term disability benefits, it can be. 66.67% or two thirds, right? This is what we always talk about. So it's less. So if you're, you know, doing the math, you know, you what the insurance company will say is that there is no shortfall in a situation like that. Because even if we pay you the maximum, you know, you're going to get more or should be getting more from workers' compensation. But again, this is all flawed if workers' compensation doesn't pay you the income support or that income support doesn't pay you for however long long-term disability is supposed to pay you, right? right? So let's not forget, LTD benefits are available to you until you potentially turn 65 if you are still totally disabled and unable to work. And so I don't want to see a situation where someone's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go down the workers' compensation pack path because that's going to pay me more anyway and ignore the disability insurer. Absolutely not. You should be making applications to all of these sources of income and then if you have issues or disputes, then you activate the right channels. And when it's long-term disability or short-term disability, hopefully you're giving us a call. And that is kind of the way we're going to leave it for today. So many questions. I know you may come up things with your head during the last hour you want to ask tomorrow. You can uh, you can go ahead and reach out. Never hesitate to do so. And it can start with a phone call if uh, or if you prefer some, some correspondence of the written nature. You can email help at disabilityrights.ca. Just write your... Uh, your problems and issues there in that email, help at disabilityrights.ca. There's mydisabilityquestions.com. That is the website that's free and anonymous. That database where you type your question is searchable. So there's a uh, pretty high probability that someone like-minded has uh, has asked a similar question to yours. So you can search it, save some time. If not, your question's good to go, and it will get answered. And then finally, uh, you want to reach out to ltdfaq.ca. Short, concise memos, really easy to read. You go to that website. There's different blocks of topics, drop-down topics from there you just click on them and read them it's not legal speak it's really simple to understand ltdfaq.ca and again one more time that phone number 1-855-821-5900 we'll catch you next time on the disability law show